Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Folly or Different. And we're sponsored by the great folks at Oracle NetSuite. Check out netsuite.com slash different today to uh, get more information on the world's number one cloud business system. That's netsuite.com slash different. My friends at Splunk are the leaders in turning data into doing. Visit Splunk, S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D, the number two, the letter E. That's Splunk dot com slash D to E. And my friends at Atranet will help you conquer your category with a legendary website. Check out A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. Now, on this episode, a conversation about God, a very different conversation about God. Now, you might be asking, why are we dealing with God on a business podcast? Well, first of all, um, if you're a regular listener, you sure know this is no uh, normal business podcast. And when this crisis started, all of us here, you know, there's a group of us that do this. It's not just me, uh, decided to steer right into this crisis to not shy away from it, but to try and rise up to it to help you and to, frankly, to help ourselves scale ourselves to meet the challenge of this time we find ourselves in. So I want you to know, we sure hope you've been enjoying everything we've done since this crisis started, and we have a committed intention to make as big a difference to you as possible by, frankly, tackling as wide range a set of topics around business, of course, marketing, career design, life design, category design, and now spirituality. Because um, even though we have a lot of business conversations around here, we know that you're a person (laughs) and all of us have to grapple with a wide set of topics. And so we sincerely hope all of us here at Follow Your Different that um, these episodes have been making a difference at this extraordinary moment in time. Because, you know, we believe that uh, real conversations, no BS dialogues are the pathway to greater understanding as we all grapple with what we're all grappling with. And in times of crisis, many of us, and maybe maybe most of us, turn to family, friends, and faith. I also want you to know, if you and your family are struggling or in any way in pain right now, like ours is, my heart goes out to you. And um, we are going through some of the worst things a family can go through. And in our family, the hits keep coming. And... Um, Uh, Right now, we're dealing with um, a health crisis, one of my best friends, after a horrible accident. And, um, you know, we've been dealing with the loss of of one of our great friends for um, almost a year now in the most horrible way you can lose a friend. So I found this conversation with uh, Pastor Dave very comforting, and I hope you will too. Matter of fact, I know you will. And even if you're not a Christian and you don't consider yourself a particularly religious person, I think there's a lot from this conversation that you'll take because it's a very, very different conversation about God. Pastor Dave Ferguson uh, was introduced to me by my dear friend, uh, collaborator and co-author Eddie Yoon, the legendary Eddie Yoon. He's been on this podcast a number of times, Lockhead on Marketing. He's the author of the smash hit Super Consumers. And frankly, he's a deeply spiritual man, and Eddie has been um, not just a friend and a brother to me, but he's been a spiritual uh, guide and advisor to me through really a horrible time in my life and the life of my family. And that's how I got to meet uh, Pastor Dave. Pastor Dave Ferguson is an award-winning author. 
He's the founder and lead pastor of Chicago's Community Christian Church, which is considered by many to be one of the most influential multi-site churches in America, uh, based in the Chicago area. He's the author of Hero Maker, Five Essential Practices for Leaders to Multiply Leaders. And today we have a very big conversation about God. Pay special attention to Pastor Dave's thoughts on what he thinks God wants for all of us. Now, as the religious philosopher Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. Well, Pastor David, it sure is great to get this time with you. Chris, it's good to be with you too. Thanks for uh, the invitation. Uh, it's 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 an absolute joy. I'm glad Eddie introduced us, and I've been looking forward to uh, our time together for quite some time now. Uh, I have a zillion questions for you, but maybe before we go to my questions, I'm just curious, what's on your mind right now? What's on my mind? Probably what is in the forefront of my mind is, why would Chris have me on his podcast? Uh, first of all, um, I think for our nation and for our world, this is a very trying time, obviously on so many dimensions. And I don't consider myself a overly religious person. I do consider myself a spiritual person. There have been many points in my life where I have been comforted by a religious leader of one sort or another. And so the reason I wanted to have you on is a man that I love deeply, respects and admires you deeply. And I thought it would be a great conversation to get into what from your perspective the world looks like right now and obviously to have a conversation about god i i i don't think there are very very many atheists in the foxhole and i think many of us are in the foxhole now i have been living in a foxhole for the last 10 months and i could never have got through the pain and suffering that our family has been going through without faith faith friends and family i believe are the way you get through hell and certainly that's what I've been leaning on. And so for all of those reasons and, and maybe a few others, uh, when Eddie uh, you know, brought you to my attention, I thought it might be a wonderful time to sit down with Pastor Dave. Well, I would be most curious, I guess, I mean, as much as you feel comfortable for you to tell me your story, I think context and your story, I think might help me even understand where potentially, I mean, God intersects and what maybe, maybe even what God's trying to do. I don't want to be too presumptuous. Hmm. One of my closest friends uh, was murdered uh, last October. Yeah, and he told me about that. I, and again, I, I'm i really, really sorry about that. In fact, just so you know, too, and I'm sure Eddie's probably said it, we're in the same, we're in the same small group, Eddie and I are. And uh, there's been times where, I mean, specifically without detail, but by name, we've prayed for you. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I would ask you to pray for Tushar and his family as well. And Eddie has been a wonderful, wonderful friend and been incredibly loving and caring uh, to us as we've dealt with that. And then a, a very recent, o over the last uh, 12 days or so, and the, the specifics are probably not appropriate for me to get into, but a member of our family, somebody I love dearly, was in a horrible accident and suffered a traumatic brain injury. 
Mm. And uh, we've been dealing with that over the last handful of days and having to deal with, you know, the potential of losing him. It now looks like maybe that won't happen, but he's absolutely fighting for his life and fighting for his future. And this is a a person in, that our whole family loves deeply and um, and is another one of my best friends. And so independent of COVID and, you know, the fight for racial justice and dealing with this horrible economic crisis that we're all dealing with, our family over the last uh, little bit here uh, has been dealt a, a pretty tough hand. And just in the spirit of completion, there were four people arrested for the murder of my friend and all four of them uh, come from a very religious Baptist background. Hmm. And as a matter of fact, uh, two of them are brothers and the father of those two brothers is a chaplain in the Baptist church. And I'll never forget. Uh, it took 231 days for them to be arrested. Pastor Dave, and uh, Eddie has been incredible through all those days and, and beyond. And of my friends, he's the person in my life that I'm closest to that's, a ba- that's also a Baptist. And we talk about religion and God a lot. And I'll never forget having to call him after the evil was captured and we began to understand who they were. The other thing you should know is, is my dear friend Tushar was a, and these are his words, a brown guy. And the four young, uh, they're 19, 22, 22, and 23 men who murdered Tushar are white uh, Baptists from Southern California. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it was extra hard to call Eddie and say, you're not going to believe this, but this is the background of the evil that killed uh, my beloved friend. And so... uh, all of that sits in the context of today's conversation. Yeah. How do you so far make sense out of that? I mean, you got Eddie who, on the one hand, I mean, is a Christian and has been a huge, huge help to you. And I think, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm going to just say has kind of displayed the love of God or love of Jesus to you. On the other hand, you have these four people who claim to have the same background who've done something absolutely heinous. I mean, where are you in all that right now? So I don't connect the evil to Christianity or to the Baptist church other than they, they clothe themselves in that. In other words, maybe here's a simpler way to say it. I have Muslim friends, pastor Dave, and I did not blame my Muslim friend, friends or, or that religion and faith for the events of 9-11. M- Muslims did not do that. E- evil right. did that. Right. And the degree to which the evil that flew those planes wrapped themselves in Islam and claimed to be acting on behalf of the religion and you'll have to excuse me. I talk like a pirate a lot. So. <laughs> May the Lord forgive me in advance. But those assholes yeah. were not Muslims right. in any way that I under. And I'm not a 
religious scholar the way you are, but you know, I'm not the dumbest guy in the world. And I think I understand a little bit about Islam and I've spent time in the Middle East and I've, I have friends and I've worked, I've worked with people of that faith. And I, so I have an understanding. I've been to uh, Indonesia many times. It's the largest Muslim country in the world and have Indonesian friends. And so anyway, I didn't blame Muslims for 9-11. And I did not blame Baptists, never mind Eddie, for Tushar's murder. It does make me think about the bastardization of religion by pure evil and why it's a narrative we see throughout history where people who 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 cloak themselves who clothe themselves who 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 stand for you know the bible by way of example are racist evil torturous murderous people and so I, I, I find that fascinating. It's something I very much want to speak with you about. But I do want you to know, uh, Pastor Dave, I, I in no way, shape, or form blame the Baptist church for this. I am angry, I will tell you, at the Baptist Church of Lancaster, California, because there have been no prayers. There mm. have been no candles. There have been no phone calls to my friend's family. There have been no public denouncements of, I don't know, is denouncement a word? There have been no public sure. outcry by their leadership denouncing evil, uh, denouncing the evil which came from their church, which was educated at their Baptist high school, which did missions around the world on the, with the banner of the Baptist church. And so I find that, as you can probably tell in my voice, mm -hmm. uh, not just upsetting, angering, and who am I to say what is Christian and what is not Christian, but it, it seems pretty at odds to me with being Christian. And so I, 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 that, I'm pissed off at that church. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not pissed off at your church. Does that does that make sense? Sure. And I think one of the ways, and you mentioned this too, you think that that God's already been at work in your life through faith and family and friends. And I think that's actually, we can get in if you want, that's really good theology. And at the risk of us be assuming that we're, we're becoming friends, as sincerely as I can say it or you can receive it, I am really, really sorry. And I think, I mean, I'm trying to, as we talk to, because I, I, I feel a certain amount of responsibility because I know Eddie loves you and consequently now I do. I want to be sensitive about it, but as I'm trying to pray, even while we're talking, and I do, I really, and as you were talking, I just, I really felt a sense that like, like, like God wanted to just say, he is really, really sorry. And that he, do, I mean, he, he doesn't think that, I mean, there's nothing about that that's right. And it's very kind of you to say, and okay. I deeply appreciate it. Eddie, apologized on behalf of the church mm -hmm. and i'll share with you what i shared with him when he did that uh the in my opinion yeah. the baptist church owes us no apology i'm not an expert on the baptist church but clearly i have friends who are baptist eddie being the one i'm closest to 
and I have enough of a sense of the Baptist church to know that I would be surprised, let me say it this way, I would be surprised to learn that the vast majority of Baptists are not great people. I know what your commitment is to human beings because Eddie shared that with me. You don't get to be Pastor Dave unless you're pretty committed to doing good things in the world. And so, look, I'm not an expert on the Baptist church, but my spider senses, so to speak, are that Mm -hmm. if, if I spent time with the average Baptist, I would find that person to be a wonderful, loving person. So I appreciate the, the, um, sentiment for sure, but I want you to know I, I'm in no way, shape, or form looking for an apology from the Baptist Church. I, I am looking for the Lancaster Baptist Church, not just to apologize to us, but to stand up against evil. Look, the four evil that killed my friend were white. He's Indian. We know for a fact that the part of the world that they live in, uh, in that part of Southern California, uh, it's called the Antelope Valley, mm. is a hotbed of, and I'm going to call them what I think they are, white terrorists. Okay, I don't like this term white nationalist. I think that's BS. Mm-hmm. Um, they're terrorists. You know, we call them Islamic terrorists. They're Christian terrorists. And there's no question in my mind that these people were racist against my brother. I can't get into it, but I have strong reason to believe that's the case. Now, I think they wanted to rob him and kill him. So how much race had to play in what they did, we'll never know for sure, of course. But um, here's the one thing we do know for sure. There have been no flowers from the Lancaster Baptist Church. There has been no prayers for his family. There has been no denouncing of evil and of murder and of racism. And this is a part of the country where a young black man was found hanging in a tree not that long ago. So that needs to get addressed. But just like with the discussion around the police, Pastor Dave, are there bad police? Mm -hmm. Yes, there are. Are there bad Muslims? Yes, there are. Are there bad Christians? Yes, there are. There are bad human beings. Evil is a very real thing. And so that's how I hold it. I was listening to, uh, what was the, because the, I'm a newer listener to your podcast. What was the one you did? It was only five minutes. What was it titled? It was called A, a Call for Unity. And then yeah. it was subtitled Yesterday in Santa Cruz. Yeah. I mean, it feels like, yeah, what you did there, I thought, I thought, that, was, I thought that was brilliant. And I think, unfortunately, most Christians haven't figured out how to do that. Hmm. Where on the one hand, uh, well, and, and partly I think life circumstances, I mean, so you, there was a police officer friend that you were, you're mourning the loss of him. And then, and because I, I wasn't familiar with that terminology, um, the paddle out, mm-hmm. uh, that you're, that you'd also did a paddle out that day for George Floyd. And I think, I think when, and again, I'm going to say it this way. I think when Christians get it right which is clearly only a percentage of the time. But when we get it right, I think it's exactly like that, that we mourn, we, we, we mourn the evil that took the life of our friend who's a police officer. And we also mourn the evil that took the life of a person of color just because they were a person of color. And both those things, I think, break the heart of God. Mm. Mm. 
Um, and in some ways too, I think, I think listening to you, um, reflect on that. That's what I'd kind of been trying to do in our community. Uh, because on the one hand, post George Floyd, um, I reached out to a, a friend of mine who is, is a African-American fashion on the South side of Chicago. And we had a longer conversation and we posted on our website and that, be, that became the Sunday message. I just wanted people to hear his story and not a white guy's story, but hear his story. Um, I have some other friends in our network in Chicago and another African-American pastor friend asked me to be a part of the March protesting there. And so I was, a, I was you know, I was, a, I was a part of that, but at the same time, one of the things I, I tried to do is I went to our, I, I live out in Naperville, which is a suburb of Chicago. I went to downtown Naperville and just uh, Facebook live. I, cause we, and this was, this was different for Naperville. Have you ever been to Naperville? I have. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time in the Chicago area. I have friends there, obviously Eddie and I have uh, another dear couple I, that I adore with everything I am. And I've done business in Chicago and I love the whole area. Yeah, it's kind of this safe, somewhat Pleasantville, yeah, <laughs> um, um, suburban enclave out there. It's it's but, a little bit of a bubble, right? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but for the first time, and I've been here for thirty years, first time uh, as a part of the protests. I mean, a lot of the local businesses, the windows were broken. There was a lot of a lot of damage that was done, and so people all of a sudden it gets people's attention. But the other part, of, so I was Facebook Live. I went downtown just to pray for our city, but also I wanted. I stopped intentionally at the place where I know the protesters confronted the police and prayed also for the police. So I was trying. I think I've. I feel like in the spirit of Jesus too, trying to do what what you did. But I think the way you articulated it, and that's a gift you have. You're just. I mean, great with words. Was exactly. I think consistent with the heart of God. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Dave. That's kind of you to say. I think I think all of us are trying to figure out what it means to be a good person today. Right? I think as it relates to equality and justice, um, many of us have been awakened uh, in a way that we were not before. I, I don't consider myself to be racist. Far from it. I've had friends of virtually every stripe that you can imagine since I was a kid. I, I went to a school that was, uh, had pretty much everything going on in it. <laughs> and so as a, as a pretty young guy, I, a kid, you know, I had friends of, I had gay friends and black friends and friends of different religions. And, and I didn't, so that part of it, I don't know. I just, I, I, and I'm also, you know, an immigrant to the United States. I grew up in Canada. I've been here for 25 years, but I just was not anywhere near as tuned into the way that people of color feel, even though I have friends of color. Uh, the conversations I've had with my friends of color of late have been stunningly eye-opening. Oh, yeah. And I don't know why we didn't have these conversations before, but I sure am glad we're having them now. Oh, yeah. I mean, even in a, I mean... You know, I guess I, I, I put myself in the same cat. It's interesting. I actually grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago. And in the south suburbs, um, when I grew up there, probably the town I grew up in, in University Park, it was probably 75, 80% African-American by the time mm -hmm. I graduated from high school. So when I moved to Naperville, 
which is probably, I don't know, I'm going to ballpark 80% Anglo. I, there was, I, two, I remember having two thoughts going like, wow, holy smoke, look at all these big houses. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then secondly, what happened to all the black people? Yeah. But I would say, too, yeah, the same experience for me having conversations. Um, th- I'm thinking of one guy who's um, an executive, uh, African-American guy who recently had the conversation with him, like, yeah, that, about him getting pulled over. Uh, this is not actually Naperville, but it could happen in Naperville. Him getting pulled over in his neighborhood, very huge houses there because he's done very well. But him getting pulled over and the cop asking him, so what are you doing in this neighborhood? Because it's a Saturday, he's in sweats and just, you know, and he's like, I live over there. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and you've had this too now. Every African-American parent has to have the conversation with their son or daughter. Here's how you will conduct yourself for survival's sake, if, uh, if you get pulled over by, by a police officer. And of course, you know, my dad never had that conversation with me. I never had that conversation with my kids. Right. It's, 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 I'm glad we're having those conversations, but I'll, I'll, I'll relay one other story. My dad's a pastor. Uh, my mom and dad uh, are actually still actively involved in pastoring. And, and in the middle of this, and this was probably more around the time of Ferguson, not, uh, not, not so much uh, during the George Floyd, but back a few years, mm-hmm. my mom and dad decided that they were going to reach out to a couple of the African-American people in their, their church, my mom in particular, and she's in her seventies and wanted to just, she actually got on the phone and said, Hey, um, I can't remember the lady's name, but she said, Hey, could we get together and talk? And they were kind of already friends. And she was like, of course we can. And she said, no, I want to, this is her, her, her black friend. She said, no, I want to talk about what's going on. And she's, and the lady said, okay. They got together and they were old enough that she could remember a lynching and they'd been friends or acquaintances, but had never come up. Mm-hmm. And she began to tell her story growing up as a person of color. And I remember afterwards, my mom's conveying this to me over lunch. And it was like what you described an awakening. My mom, I remember my mom kind of leaning in and looking at me and saying, you know what? I think this has been going on for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's happening for a lot of us. I think, and I feel almost stupid talking about it. Here we are, two white guys talking about it. And, 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 you know, but I think our black friends have been going like, yeah, this has been going, yeah, a long, long, long time. And it's, I mean, it's finally getting captured on video. And, I, and that's, that, that almost makes it more indignant, the fact that it takes video for, you know, for a couple of white guys to finally believe them. Yeah. And uh, to provoke those conversations. But having said that, I think it is good that we're having those conversations. We need to have those conversations. I think we, and I also think that we need to start moving beyond words too. But I don't know, I kind of derailed. Where were you headed with that? You derail me all you want, Pastor. (laughs) I'll chase you down any zebra hole you want. Um, uh, No, I, I think that's the wonderful part of what's going on. I mean, look, we're people like you and I ignorant about racism in the United States. No, we knew there's racism. We knew there's white terrorism. Um, we knew there's discrimination. We clearly knew there were problems with certain uh, police officers and maybe in, in, entire police forces are rotten. Um, I think the thing that I didn't get was how pervasive and how I had a friend of color recently say to me, that the reason the vast majority of her friends are 
other women of color is it's exhausting living in a white world. <laughs> yeah. And so when she's sort of downshifting and relaxing and uh, wanting to have conversation and enjoy herself and so forth, over time, she's tended to have less uh, Caucasian friends because it's, quote, exhausting. And I asked her, okay, well, so what does exhausting mean? And she gave me a bunch of examples, which I can share if you like. But sure. you know, that wasn't a conversation I was having before. And I, I was heartbroken to find out she felt this way. And she said, well, her husband feels this way. And she said, look, you know, wake up. A lot of people of color feel this way. And so I, I don't want her to live in a world where she feels it's exhausting to be around white people. <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous. Well, and I think probably me and you, I mean, specifically probably feel it the least because we're two, you know, white, probably middle class, upper middle class guys. And so the, all the world kind of, I, in my, my, my feeling, all the world kind of, we set the norm and everybody else has to kind of capitulate to that. When I was doing this interview with uh, with my buddy Quentin, who's the pastor of the South Side, he talked about it. And I don't know if you have you heard this term code switching. Mm -mm. Oh yeah, he, and I, I and again, so here it is. I was the same thing a few weeks. I didn't know. It. He said, "Yeah, I said code switch." He said, "Code switch." What do you mean? And he's like, "No, I mean most black people know that when you're in a predominantly white context." you have to behave a different way. You have to switch. You have to, there's a code, you have to switch the right. way you, the way you behave, the way you talk and that kind of stuff. He's, and I even asked him, I said, so are we doing it? Are you doing it to me right now? And he's like, no, no, you're my friend. So I don't have, have to do that. And he said, he's gotten to come place now in his own leadership and his own personal development where he said, I don't have to as much, but he said, for example, he said, as a young African-American, he said, I always wore a jacket. Right. And I, and part of the, wearing a jacket, was just it was kind of it was like a signal like no see i'm i'm responsible i'm respected he said i don't feel like i have to do it now because he's now almost 40 he said but as a younger man yeah i i certainly there are certain things you just you just had to do yeah and we didn't really experience much of that not certainly not no. in any way that's comparable no no you know i i there are things i feel like i can relate to okay and we all look for basis of relation and connection I didn't have the easiest upbringing and I had a lot of people bet against me for a whole bunch of reasons and, 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 and so forth and so on. But I don't have a college education. Uh, I got thrown out of high school, you know, except, and, and we had, a, we had, growing up, I grew up in Montreal, Canada and growing up in the seventies in, in Quebec, Canada, you know, there was a, there were times where martial law was declared in Montreal because of the fighting between the English and the French. So I understand hatred around those things for reasons that make no sense whatsoever. And I understand, you know, the French people felt very oppressed by the English. And uh, I was hated by French kids at five years old for reasons I could not understand. And I don't even know they knew why they hated me, but they did. And we fought and, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah. So, look, I, I don't have an experience. I don't have an experience of being a woman, but I can try to relate best I can. I, don't, I clearly have no experience of being black, but. We can make an effort to try to understand. To I'm trying to listen harder than normal. I find myself asking the question of my friends of color, how can I help? And I try real hard to shut up after I ask that question. <laughs> yeah, that's the hard part. Uh, so, you know, can, can you and I relate? No, but I can relate to being 
um, cast out. I can relate to being the underdog. Yeah. I can relate to being the misfit. I can relate to being counted out. I can absolutely, as as someone with uh, uh, multiple learning disabilities, or or today we call them differences, uh, dyslexia, dyscalculia, executive function disorder, uh, ADHD, etc. Um, you know, being felt discriminated against, being felt like I was uh, written off or, you know, so I look, can I relate to being black? No, of course not. But most of us in our lives can find some place where there's some kind of connection that we can begin to try to walk in some other shoes. Oh, yeah. And I would say, too, I mean, that or I will say like Quentin and I'm thinking about Ricky Brown is also on the South Side. Watson Jones, a few of my friends there, they've been telling me too that they feel like something's different this time post George Floyd. And one of the things that they are telling me that they're more hopeful for change this time is because there are people like yourself or myself, there are leaders, white leaders, who are now coming alongside them and are speaking up and adding their voice to the conversation like hasn't happened in the past. Yes. And I find that's good news. That's really good news. The other thing I find interesting, and this may be a weird bit of a weird segue, but we've heard so much over the last handful of years, Pastor Dave, about quote unquote identity, how I identify, right? You've heard, we've heard it a lot in the context of LGBTQ folks. <laughs> they seem uh-huh. to, as a dyslexic, I got to get all the letters right, but uh, gay folks. Uh, transgender folks. Uh, so we hear this term a lot now. Well, I identify as X. And so I try to be a student of language and pay attention to a certain to words. And so identify leads, of course, to identity. And identity leads to ultimately, what is my context of myself? What is my relationship with myself and my context. And I don't wake up and go, I'm a white guy. No. So, so I know I am, obviously I have a mirror, but it's not part of my identity. The way say being a marketing guy is part of my identity as a three time Mm -hmm. public company CMO or being a husband is part of my identity or being an uncle is an important part of my identity, being a friend, etc. So there are certain things that I like to think of myself as that you could call identify as, but I don't identify as distinct from black or brown people in that way. And this may sound corny, but I think when you're with somebody where there's a meaningful background difference like that, whether it's a religious difference or whether they grew up in a different country, so it's a cultural difference or a skin color difference or a sex difference, they're a different sex than you or whatever it is, I find that those things are noticeable in the beginning. When you sit down and have a coffee or a beer, or you first get introduced yeah, to somebody or whatever. Yep. You, yep. Yeah. If, if, if you meet a black person, you notice they're a black person or if you right. meet... A, a, a person who is female, you know that they're not another male that you're meeting, right? And, and so we're aware of those things. But I also find that once you start talking or if you're in a work context or whatever the context is, you get, you get onto whatever it is 
you're you're doing with this person, it goes away very quickly. And I I don't think of my quote black friends as my black friends or my brown friend. I don't think oh my. Mm-hmm. Brown friend over here, like, <laughs> n- n- no. Now, you know, I have some brown friends, by way of example, who are incredible uh, Latino cooks. So if we're if they're bringing over a homemade burrito that they made for me, uh, then, yes, I'm reminded that they're Latino or Mexican. But I don't think, oh, yes, yeah, so I have Mexican friends and black friends. You don't know. You just have friends. They have names. You love them. You talk to them. You experience them. You look forward to seeing them. And. And I see, like, I noticed this recently with, with one of my Jewish friends where I was like, something came up and somebody said, oh, well, you know, he's Jewish. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. Like, I don't think about it. And so I know I'm, I'm, I'm going on here, but those differences can go away very quickly to the point where I almost feel stupid and naive when I, when I sort of forget and somebody says, oh, well, so-and-so is Jewish or, well, yeah, well, the reason she thinks that is because she's black or what, whatever. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, she have, she's black. So that I guess that might be relevant to the discussion. But it, it seems to melt away quickly these things that we make very a very big deal. Am I making any sense, Pastor Dave? Um, maybe. Here's, here's what it made me think of. Maybe you don't so much forget, because obviously you're still aware of it, as it's not nearly as primary. And I, here's what I'm wondering too. I, my, my understanding of who God is and what he's up to throughout all of history is he's trying to really do two things. Well, one thing, but express two different ways. He's trying to bring people together and he's trying to bring people back to him. Hmm. Kind of, you know, when they asked Jesus, what was the greatest, what, what, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And then it's almost like he, uh, but there's another one that's a part of that. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so yeah. when given the opportunity for the, the greatest queen, he said, okay, here, and it's kind of like, here's what God's up to, bringing people together and bringing people back to himself. I wonder if what's happening for you, as you get to know these people more and more, you're growing closer and closer to them, right? Mm-hmm. And so you don't forget they're black, you don't forget they're Jewish or Latino, whatever. You don't forget. It's just not as primary. Because I think what happens, and I, this is what I felt like happened even, I keep forgetting the number, the name of the five-minute piece you did that was so good. What's it called uh, again? Uh, it's called A Call for Unity. Yeah, The Call for Unity is that you saw both people, this will be my terminology, you might not put these words to it, but you saw that both people, both those people's primary identity is they were just a child of God. Mm. And I wonder if this is true as we deep as as we as we develop these friendships, which is what God wants. He's that's what he's up to in the world, bringing people together, reconciliation. As he's doing that, maybe we're actually we're not aware of it theologically, but we're actually actually God's at work and as as we get closer to him, it's not that we forget they're black or white or Jewish or whatever. It's just that we begin to see them more in their this just their 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 humanity. Mm-hmm. If you ask me my core identity, even beyond being like some of the things you listed vocationally or relationally, my family, has a, my core identity is I'm a child of God. Mm. And I'll tell you what, try you don't you just try that on, Chris, for a week. I, that's what I tell people to do. Just try it on. You don't, you don't have to step into it. I mean, you can just step into it. You don't have to stay there, but just try it on for a little. What if your core identity was that you're a child of God? 
And consequently, then you go, everybody else is a child of God. Because if everybody's a child of God, then yeah, that's why you mourn the death of your friend who was a police officer who was so helpful. Mm -hmm. And that's also why you mourn the loss of George Floyd. And candidly, even if he did have some criminal stuff in his background, that doesn't freaking matter. It's a, that's a child of God, right? Let me ask you the question now. Am I making, am I making sense? <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I love the paradigm. I'm, I'm reminded as a younger man, I had a lot of Samsonites to unpack. <laughs> so starting around 17, 18 yeah. through till probably my late 20s, maybe even early 30s, but definitely there's a high level of intensity where I did a lot of what I think most people today would call personal development work. Yeah. And as part of that, dug into a whole bunch of things around religion. I was raised Catholic. Uh, I was baptized, First Communion, the whole thing. But at that age, I was trying to sort myself out and um and so i did a whole series of things training programs i did a lot of reading i did some spiritual and religious things sought the counsel of many anyway in that whole journey i remember um uh, buying a, a set of marianne williamson tapes uh who we've now gotten to know even better as a result of her political yes. aspirations <laughs> yes we have you got to give her credit for being entertaining, if nothing else. Yes. But uh, something she said, this was shortly, I think, after her her blockbuster book, Return to Love, came out. And I remember her saying something on those tapes, and maybe it's what you're, the direction you're in. She said, God's plan works and yours doesn't. <laughs> she should have she said that from the, on the campaign. I would have voted for it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, is that sort of the what you're pointing at? Yeah. If we're saying God's plan, which is bringing people together and bringing people back to him, yes, that is foolproof. In fact, I would say, okay, that's the plan that works. The plan that me and you are attempting to pull off, not so much. <laughs> in fact, what's fascinating, if you go even in the Bible, if you get in Genesis, start in Genesis, I think that's exactly how God meant the world to be. You know, people lived in perfect relation with each other, and they lived in perfect relationship with 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 God. Hmm. And then it's this this thing called sin enters the world, right? Now, when I say sin, though, again, this is kind of you got to un, kind of unpack it. I think sin is just relational distance between you and God. And so, all of a sudden, if this if God's up to trying to bring us together and bring us back to Him, and all of a sudden sin shows up, it just and what sin does it puts distance between me and you, Chris. Yep. And it also puts distance between me and God. That's Marianne Williams. That's when the world doesn't work. Yeah. I also noticed something as a young man that has, and of course, everything at some levels in interpretation that seems to have been true throughout my life, Pastor Dave. And, and that is, and this may sound corny, but when I surrender, something magical happens and you know some people god's a heavy word and so it might sound corny to some but it is surrendering to god it is surrendering to the universe it is surrendering to what i believe is my true purpose um and it harkens back somewhat to the marianne williamson and so it does feel like to me 
that when you surrender your ego, when you surrender your agenda and you ask the question, what is there for me to do here? What, 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 what's the man upstairs telling me he wants me to do? Why am I in this position? Why is this happening? How can there be this evil and pain in the world? I mean, some of us uh, have experienced this evil and pain around C-19 and George Floyd's murder and the recession in mm -hmm. a deep, deep, deep way. Even if it hasn't affected you meaningfully, personally, it still has because it's happening to the world. Yeah. And, and all of us have some empathy and some of us have more than others. And so there's this pain and suffering that many of us are going through now. And uh, Eddie gave me some of Tim Keller's books. Mm. And uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, I believe, is, is one of them. And whew, holy God, Pastor, that's a book. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Keller, I mean, I both respect him as a as someone who loves God, but also he's a brilliant mind. Yeah, he is a brilliant mind. I was going to say uh, under the topic of surrender. So like, give me an example of the, a time when you're going like, yeah, I surrendered and it was kind of like back to the, yeah, and things seemed to work. Uh, yeah, I'll give you a very specific example. So I got thrown out of school at 18 uh, and with uh, very few options, uh, started a company. And by 21, that company had blown up and was a failure and uh, was on the verge of bankruptcy. We didn't actually declare bankruptcy. We took all the debt and cut it in half, me and my partner, Jack, and paid people off over time. But at 21, I found myself uh, in debt, no education, no job, newly married at the time, and really in the pit of despair, not knowing what to do. And being very, very concerned and having a new wife looking at me going, what did I just do, marry this bum, uh, uh, et cetera. And in a moment like that of, of desperation, there is some faith that, at least for me, is required. Now, I also got busy. I didn't, you know, sit in the basement and drink beer and have faith. <laughs> so, so I'm not a believer in this book, The Secret, that you can just sort of manifest it and it's going to just show up. So I'm not talking about that stupidity. Right. I think, and you'll tell me, but I think God does reward thoughtful uh, action. <laughs> so I tried to do that as well. But at the same time, I didn't know what to do. And the only sort of idea I could come up with is you got to own this failure, Lockhead. And you got to admit it. And you got to tell people what's up, specifically the people you're doing business with. So uh, I called all of our major relationships. Um, Jack and I sort of split them up and uh, business partners and clients and, and, and the like and said, look, we failed. And, um, you know, we're going to wind down the business and we're trying to pay everybody off, et cetera, et cetera. But we, 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 tr we owned it and we called people and we told them what was up. And in those calls, one of the business partners that we had uh, was another entrepreneur, a much older guy than me. And he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, his name was Bill. And I said, I, I have no idea, Bill. Uh, you know, candidly, it's a very, very trying time because um, I don't have the resources to start another company and you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he said, well, listen, I'm, I, I remember this conversation like it was yesterday. He said, I'm in Florida right now on vacation. Don't make any decisions. I'm back on Monday. Let's talk on Monday. I'm starting a new company. 
that I think you would be great for. And I would really love it if you came and did this new company with me. So please don't take a job anywhere else. I really want us to do this together and let's talk about it when I get back. And sure enough, that's what happened. And my career was like that on an ongoing basis. I never got a headhunter job ever. All my entire career, whether it was companies I was starting or joining, all came through relationships, all came from being open to serendipity, all came to be came from being open to possibility. And I learned early on, Dave, there were moments in my career, I could tell you another story if you care, but there were moments in my career where as corny as it sounds, it felt like someone, let's just say God, tapped me on the shoulder and went, hey, over there, pay attention. Yeah. Go there, see what happens over there. And I, for the most part, have listened to that voice. And I have had, for the most part, a magical life. What happens when you don't surrender to that? <laughs> Am I allowed to use the F word with you, Pastor? <laughs> things get effed up. <laughs> things yeah. get effed up. Yeah. Yeah. Things get effed up. Yeah. And I mean, if, and if you were some in my church and we were, you know, having this conversation and I would say, and actually this is what I do a lot too for people that are really sincerely seeking. I'm going like, you know what? Just continue to s- search that continue to pursue that and if it's real because we're talking about god in this case he'll make himself real to you in fact i even sometimes i'll challenge people hey and you know take 30 days take 30 days and just pray the prayer god if you're real make yourself real to me Hmm. god if you're real make yourself real to me and it sounds like to me there's been enough times in your history where god has proven himself real and actually i mean taking you down a really good path that he has kind of he's he's a, has consistently showed up. Yes, and as corny as it's, it these, might it's sound. these dang people, it's the dang people that keep screwing it up, <laughs> right? I mean, yes. in some ways, I mean, because it is, it's kind of like I mean, going full circle back back to this this church that is just who have not owned what they should have owned, or at the very least, express remorse. I think that's that's the thing that gets sometimes gets gets in our way. I remember, I remember, I don't know who it was. Maybe it was Philip Yancey. I don't know if that name means anything to you or not, but I remember a book called Disappointment with God. And I think somewhere in there, the punchline, he, he said this, he said, never confuse people with God. Hmm. Never confuse people with God. And I was like, okay, that's helpful. That was helpful. <laughs> so one of the things I've been uh, sort of very much looking forward to digging into with you is something that Eddie helped me with via Tim Keller, which is when you experience unthinkable evil and that evil is breathing in your face every day, it's easy to go to this place that says, well, if there's a God, how can there be this evil? If there's a God, how can this wonderful man in my life have suffered this horrible, stupid accident and be fighting for his life. You know, so for example, Pastor Dave, I no longer believe in karma. I think karma is bullshit because in both the cases of my murdered brother and of my family member who suffered this horrible injury of late and has a traumatic brain injury and is fighting for his life. In both cases, 
These are remarkable men. These are kind-hearted men. These are seriously accomplished men. These are men who, who bring incredible things to the world, who are the best friends you could imagine. And so there's no concept of them deserving either of these things, right? And in the context of evil, my, my murdered friend, and so one of the things that the big question is, how can there be God when there's evil like that in the world? Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, I've done a lot of thinking and reading and dare I say praying on this. Yeah. And I have some ideas, but I really am interested in your ideas. Well, l- let me start by saying probably what I'll initially say might make sense in your head, but I doubt it'll make your heart feel any better. I think we go back to what God wants to do in the world. He's trying to bring people together and bring people back to himself. Fundamentally, it's about relationships. That God wants people, he created people to be in relationship with one another. And he created people actually so he could be in relationship with them. So you could have a relationship with them. My understanding and my experience both is that in order for a relationship to work, there has to be a choice. I mean, like, I, I, how long have you been married? Uh, eight years. Okay, so eight years ago, some point, probably just eight years ago, I'm assuming, and your bride's name is what? Carrie. Okay. You proposed to her. I did. And she had a choice. <laughs> Fortunately, she said yes. I am more grateful she said yes today than any other day ever. <laughs> well, that's a sign of a good marriage then. And she said yes. and so. You're in this relationship out of a, a love relationship out of choice. If in a weird way, you know, she never said yes, but you, you know, I don't know. I don't want to get too graphic here, but you just, you put her hands in handcuffs and said, no, you are going to be here. Yeah. I mean, that's a different kind of relationship. She didn't have a choice. Yes. Frowned upon for sure. If not illegal. <laughs> yes. Yes. It got a little weird there. <laughs> and I think what happened the, where evil enters the world is because all of us have this free will to either choose to say yes to one another in the way that God wants or and choose to say yes to God in the way that he wants or to not because he wants to have a relationship and by God kind of in his sovereignty deciding to kind of put that into the fabric of the universe this choice that we have he takes the great relational risk that we could screw the whole thing up. Right. And we do. Yes, we do. And essentially what you have, even in the Bible, is the story of us screwing things up and God consistently trying to help us find our way back to him. Mm. So we can, like you Stephen said, and, or Marianne Williams, so the world can work right. At one point, this is the way I understand it, and this is how my faith where my faith is his love for us was so profound that he said okay i'm actually going to show up on earth and as a as a as a this will be familiar as someone who grew up in the catholic church that's who jesus was jesus was god showing up on planet earth going like all right i'm coming to re i'm coming to kind of reestablish this relationship that's been broken well, really, two things to show you how you can find your way back to God and also 
kind of horizontally how you can live life. So I'm going to actually model for you. Here's how you live life so we can make this thing work, this real community that we're supposed to have, reconciliation. But I'm also going to, through me, show you how you can reconnect with God because that's who God is, is Jesus. And fundamentally, that was Jesus's mission, yes? Absolutely. Yes. I We express it this way. Jesus' mission was to help people find their way back to God. Yeah. I noticed that's on your website. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and in some ways, that that... And for me personally, as you could know me, but that kind of, that is at the core of, I feel like my God's call on my life. It's kind of like, how do you, everything I do, whether it's the church and we do church planning and we do all kinds, we do all kinds of stuff. And even themes around racial reconciliation at the very core is how do we help people find their way back to God? Because it feels like to me, I would love your thoughts on this. That feels like the key leverage point. That's the key leverage point for, if, if it's true about God. I'm not making that assumption, but, but if if you can if if people can do that, then then this reconciliation between people can happen, and the reconciliation God can happen, and then the world works right. And so I'm kind of all chips in, bet my life on that. That's the, the key leverage point and the best thing I can trade my life for. Uh, fascinating. Uh, what do you think? Look, I, I, my life experience says I agree with you. Okay. Because the big mysteries of the world, to me, point to this. So I'll give you a simple one. Yeah. When I was a, a young man, my mother worked in, in a hospital, and she got me a job as an orderly in the hospital. Originally when I was in school, and then when I failed out of school, that's how I, I survived until I became an entrepreneur. And I actually became an entrepreneur doing two double shifts on the weekends at the hospital and working five days a week in the business. So I'd work two 18-hour shifts make enough money to pay the rent while we were getting the company started. So, wow. you know, from from about 16, 17 to probably my early 20s, 21-ish, um, worked in the hospital. And uh, as an orderly, one of the things you do is you weigh people. And patients who are in uh, typically elderly patients in more long-term care, at the time we weighed them once a week. And because I worked so many double shifts, I had a couple instances, Pastor, where I weighed somebody in the morning and they died on my shift. Mm. And part of the protocol at the time, I'm, I would imagine still the case today, is when somebody dies, one of the things that you do is weigh them. And, you know, people, people say, well, what happens when you die? Well, I know what happens when you die. An orderly and a nurse show up wash your body, weigh you, put you on a gurney and put you in a fridge. That's what happens when you die. <laughs> uh, and I'll tell you, it's a pretty heady thing for a 16-year-old kid to be washing a dead body with a nurse. Yeah. But long story longer, there were people that I weighed in the morning who died in the afternoon who I then weighed again, and they weigh the same thing. And, and so you sort of go, oh, I mean, as a young man, I sort of realized what makes you and me, you and me, doesn't weigh anything. Hmm. And of late in my life, I've had some pretty sobering conversations with uh, neurologists and neurosurgeons. And here's what I know about neurologists and neurosurgeons. They can't tell you where you are. There's no scientist, there's no doctor who can tell me where Pastor Dave is. I know mm. where the hunk of meat is. But if you lose 
your arm tragically in an accident, you're no less Pastor Dave Ferguson. You're still 100% Dave. And there are people who have all sorts of horrible things happen to their bodies, and they're no less themselves. We don't know where the thing that makes us us even resides in the physical world. the, the, The greatest... I had a conversation yesterday with one of the greatest neuro- neurologists and neurosurgeons on planet Earth. She teaches neurology and neurosurgery and neuroradiology. Uh, She's a doctor of all three of those things. Those Holy are three smoke. distinctions, right? Yeah. And she now retired and teaches that shit at UCSF. Like it, she's, and when you ask her, Hey, where, where's the person? We don't know. So this is a very long answer. I know, but what I do know is there's not the most learned people in the world in the medical and science profession cannot tell you where we are. What's the thing? What's the energy? Where do the ideas come from? Why am I able to move my head the way I just did as I'm talking to you? Why are you nodding in response? What, where, where, what, where's the place before the thought? Where's that place? They could see where the brain lights up when you're doing things and thinking things. But where did, where did that come from? There's not a person on planet earth. The most learned people can't tell you that. And so all that is to say it seems to me there's an energy, there's a power that makes us us. We are not the hunk of meat with flapping lips and listening ears. We're not. We know that. And nobody, nobody knows where we are. And so when you really unpack that and you realize that what makes us us doesn't weigh anything mm. and what makes us us has nothing to do with our physical body. So it's hard to sort of unpack those things, at least for me. And say, there isn't an energy, there isn't a power that makes me me. And if you come to that conclusion, then you go, okay, well, then there must be an energy, a power that makes you you. And oh, by the way, I'm an animal lover. Everything I just said is true for animals. I'm not a vet or a, but it's, it's, it's obvious. And look, this is going to make me sound even crazier. My wife, Carrie, and I have eight hens, chickens. Okay. And the hens love me. And they love her. And I love them back. So where does that energy, where does that power, where does that emotion come from? What makes seven and a half pound Beatrice yell for me and when I pick her up, she makes a happy sound and stops yelling. What is that? Mm. So anyway, uh, if that isn't God and if that isn't proof of God, I, I, so I don't know. I, I believe in God. Back to the identity question. Yeah. How does that, how does that impact your, your core identity then? My whole life, I've sort of asked myself, particularly at inflection points, what am I supposed to do here? When COVID started, Pastor Dave, uh, this question mm-hmm. just popped into my head. And the question is, if I was a legendary leader, what would I do now? What would I do today? It's a good question. And at inflection points in my life, 
that's the type of thing that I've tried to center on. When Tushar got murdered, what would a legendary brother do? How would you conduct yourself? What would a legendary person do for his family, his blood family, his closest friends? We were his adopted family. How would we interact with the world? How do we interact with the police? And in this horrible situation we now find ourselves in, if I was a legendary person, what would I do right now to support my family through this horrible brain injury? When Sergeant Damon Gertzweiler was murdered here in Santa Cruz, at his service, one of his closest friends and mentors said something that I'll never forget. Hmm. And he said, I will honor you by loving your family. And in that moment, Pastor Dave, I thought, I sure hope that his family thinks I'm honoring him by loving them. Mm -hmm. So I, I think at, at critical points in my life, I've asked myself questions along these lines. What would a legendary person do? What would the best version of me do in this situation? Or in career points, where am I supposed to go? You know, we all face big decisions in our lives and in our careers where it's not always clear. Should you go X? Should you, should you go Y? You know, when you get to the fork in the road, take it. Well, yeah, well, which, which one, right? Um, and so, I've always tried to ask myself, what am I supposed to be doing here? And there were times in my life where those thoughts did have a connection to a higher power. And there were a lot of times, candidly, where they didn't have a connection to a higher power. I was just looking for the answer when I couldn't, when it wasn't clear. But what I have found is in Virtually all of those inflection points in my life, if I'm brutally candid with you and myself, I don't know if voice is the right word. I don't know what the right word is, Pastor Dave, but there is, if you listen hard enough, if you mm -hmm. pay attention, if you focus, there is something that feels like a tap on the shoulder that goes, Psst, hey, over there. Yeah. And I think that's God. I would totally affirm that. Um, let me push on you a little bit. Okay. So you answered the question probably a lot like I would. I get the feeling we're wired a little bit. Even though I'm a pastor, I think I really probably think more like an entrepreneur. Um, we could talk about that sometime. And so the doing part is just like, yeah, you know, I'm, I, that's just my bias. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? You know, and goal accomplishment, that kind of stuff. But I think we're better able to navigate the doing when we understand our being. And what I'm wondering is, while that question has served you really, really well, and it is an important question to ask, that the, but the primary thing is, is the being. And, and I would suggest that, Christopher, fundamentally who you are, whether you ever accomplish anything else again, whether you are a legendary leader or not, whether this is the last podcast and nobody ever listens to anything ever again, that you are a child of God. Mm. Here's something I'll, I'll go there a little bit. I was, it sounds like you had a, a, a tough childhood, tough, some growing up years. Yes. 
remember, I'll go, I'll go back to again, the kind of, hey, when you do things God's way, things work out. I was, by God's grace and goodness, and I'm grateful, I actually grew, I grew up in a home where, okay, I got, they're getting ready to, my mom and dad are getting ready to celebrate their 60th anniversary. They loved each other. They loved God. I mean, I don't want to act like it was perfect, but it was really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> they did a great job, Dave, didn't they? Well, I mean, I'm just saying if I screw it up, it's not their fault so much. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's on me, not them. <laughs> right. And I think for me, when I think of, and I, I think before I ever understood the unconditional love of God, I had that, I think this is the way it's supposed to be. I had it at home. Hmm. And so I kind of got, I knew that, you know what, if I don't make the basketball team, if I don't get all A's, if she doesn't say yes to going to prom with me, that I, that um, Earl and Pat Ferguson would still love me relentlessly no matter what. <laughs> and it was, I mean, and still to this day, like if, if I see my mom, I mean, we don't get to hug now because of the stupid COVID thing, but, but when we get on the other side of it, I mean, when I see, I mean, she just, I mean, hugs me like I'm the greatest thing in the whole world. And so I got, mm -hmm. I kind of got nurtured that. And so when I began to understand about, as the Bible talks about God, the father's love for us. And he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I was going like it. it I think the way it was supposed to, because I grew up in the kind of fam close to the kind of family God intended. I was like, Oh yeah. And so maybe a tweak on you, for you isn't just like, okay, what do I do? Because God has clearly gifted you with a great mind and I mean, a huge platform to make a big difference. And I think you ought to do <laughs> my encouragement, God's work. Okay. The way you are, but I think you probably actually enjoy it more, more fully, if you're able to kind of just also rest and knowing like, you know what, if I never get another accolade, I'm, I'm a child of God mm. and God loves me unconditionally. I love the way, I think it was a guy named Brendan Manning who he said it this way, God loves me just as I am and not as I should be mm. just as I am and not as I should be. Um, now I don't, I don't know you well enough to know if, if you got those kind of things going in your head to drive you, but to be able to do what you're doing with a being that isn't doing it to be loved by other people, the world or accepted or all that kind of stuff. Cause you know, you're a child of God. I mean, that is a good place to be. Yeah. And I, I feel that good. I remember years ago, speaking of things that you carry with you, another uh, guy that I spent some time digging into uh, when I was younger is Wayne Dyer. Mm. And uh, he, one of the many things he's famous for saying is we are not called human doings. Mm. We're called human beings. Right. And this one, I don't know who said it, but I've always loved it. But you know, who you are speaks so loudly. I can't hear what you're saying. And so there is, a, there is something powerful about this idea of who are you being in life? Uh, and you can be being somebody very powerful that makes a giant difference without doing very much. And 
you know, I, I remember, I, again, I can't remember where I heard this or read this, but, you know, in reference to, to folks like uh, Gandhi and Mandela, mm-hmm. you know, Gandhi spent most of his life sitting by himself wearing a, uh, a sheet. And uh, for over 20 years, Mandela couldn't do yeah. anything. And in both cases, there wasn't tons of doing in the traditional sense of the word, but who they were being was so big, so dynamic, so powerful, so different, so unique, so centered, so grounded, and a million other descriptions you could put on those amazing people that in both cases, they caused revolutions by who they were being. And yes, they did some doing. I'm not being silly about it, but... But there was a big being there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and you could you could say the same thing kind of about Jesus too. I mean, basically, his whole ministry was three years. He never traveled more than seventy five miles beyond Jerusalem. I mean, that's you know. Yeah, but he had Zoom, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> and basically, he invested themselves in twelve different twelve other people, and kind of like that a movement, you know, of love and redemption when it's working right was birthed out of that. Yes, and uh, I'm apt to say that the E in CEO stands for evangelist, and evangelism is a very powerful idea, is it not? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what does the Bible teach us that you think is helpful for this time that we're in? I mean, I know you've been praying about it, and you've been preaching about it, and so what, what do you think I should know about the Bible as it relates to navigating this time, this moment that we are in in our country and, 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 and in the world. Beyond some of the themes that we've already addressed around identity, which I think are really, really core, and I'm glad we got a chance to talk about that. There's a place in the pastoral epistles where it talks about Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, um, God did not give you a spirit of fear, but instead he gave you a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. So God did not give you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. And I think what happens for someone who decides to be a follower of Jesus or a Christian is we get, we actually get, and I think that is probably where you're the spirit of God in us, which is probably what you're hearing when he's saying, hey, here's what I want you to do. And I think for a lot of us, this is a season where it's really, I think fear can consume us. Mm. We can be afraid of getting COVID. We can be a fear of being furloughed, fear of what's coming next uh, as far as the economy, fear with political upheaval and a coming election, fear around race and inequality and all those. I mean, there are a lot of things out going on out there. We've kind of weaved in and out of those. But I think what he has said, I didn't give you a spirit of fear, but instead a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. And what I've challenged the people in our church is, and it was actually a mentor of mine who gave me this. He said, he said this, and I've really tried to lean into this. And I've coached other leaders with this too. He says, where fear sees a crisis, faith sees opportunity. Could you say that again? For Yeah. Where fear sees a crisis, faith sees opportunity. And um, I think 
conversations like a conversation I had with Eddie early on. Okay. Where you could, there's a lot of reasons to be afraid. Our friend Eddie, he said, you know what? I think what some people need to realize is they have just hit the jackpot. It's like the, 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 they've won the lottery as far as time with family. Mm-hmm. There's not, I mean, you know what? I mean, there's not, most of us probably a year ago, were like, man, you know, I'm, I'm on this plane and then this plane and this plane, or I'm, I got this going on, this going on, this going on. Um, I mean, we're on video here, right? Oh yeah. It's all come down. And I mean, I've spent good grief most of the last five months sitting in this chair and there's my <laughs> family room right behind me, but I have got, to, there's been a lot more time with my wife, Sue, than before. And it's been really, really good. I think for leaders, and I think the question about how do you become a legendary leader um, is a great one. Um, And how do leaders see opportunities? I mean, for me personally, our church has not met together since the first week of March uh, in our facilities. Could you have ever imagined a scenario where that could happen, Pastor Dave? No. It's funny. I have have a, a friend who's a brilliant, what they call missiologist. And he said they used they used to play a simulation game with people to help churches understand how do you mobilize people, get them out of the building, into the community. Mm-hmm. And he said, I used to tell them to do this. Pretend you're the Archbishop of Canterbury. You have 12,000 churches you oversee, but now you have no buildings. What would you do? Mm-hmm. And then we were talking. He's like, I used to play the simulation game, but now we're actually living it out. <laughs> <laughs> this is no simulate. This is not a test. <laughs> no, right. But. Our staff has really embraced it, and we have shifted everything online. We actually have almost double the number of people who are engaged with what we're doing online, what we used to have in attendance in buildings. We have hundreds Hold of more on, people. Pastor Dave, you, yeah. you have double the people that are, uh, you tell me how you think of it, engaging with your churches online than you had, on, in online than you had in March in, in person? And we so have a fairly large in, church. In a business context, maybe th- this is inappropriate. You can kick me under the table, but no, you no, doubled I love this your, conversation too. You doubled your business, so to speak, in the crisis. That, that's what it, that's what it, that's what it's looking like. Now, if we're also measuring dollars and cents, that's about the same. Okay, but as far as the the audience that we're engaging with, yeah, it looks like it's almost doubled. The other thing you spoke to, you know, earlier too about what's getting you through this is friends, family, and faith. Well, well like Jack I mentioned, Daniels too. We can't forget about him. <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then, yeah, whatever it takes. Um, like I mentioned, Eddie's in my small group, so we had uh, we had small group Tuesday night. So we intentionally put people in these small communities. To ha- that's how we get through what we're going through, and we have hundreds of more people that are now actually in these groups, even though almost all of them are on a Zoom platform. Mm-hmm. We went to our not-for-profit partners in our community. And said, "Hey, in this crisis, what are the what are the big needs?" And they gave us they gave us the top. We were able to figure out the top eleven needs, and we took that list of needs and we formed teams around them and launched something called community cares. But anyway, that's a lot of conversation around for leaders. I think this is also a season where it's kind of like, yeah, where fear sees a crisis, we need to faith. Faith sees opportunity. And so uh, it sounds like what I'm hearing is in a very real way, when C-19 started, you asked yourself and the leadership of of your church said, how do we make a difference in this thing? And you got busy doing that. Oh, yeah. In fact, my hope and my prayer is 
that the things that we're doing now, I think now is a brilliant time for both business leaders and church leaders to invest in innovation. Any anything you ever wanted to try, do it now because yeah. if it doesn't work, <laughs> if it doesn't work, nobody's going to blame you because nothing works. But if it does work, I mean, I think you got this window of time that it could really pay off on the other end. And I think for us, the investments we're making digitally are going to really pay off because I do think everybody leapfrogged into the digital world in a different way over the last several months that's going to change what it looks like, you know, years to come. So one of the questions I've been asking, you know, CEOs and venture capitalists and business leaders is, of course, we're all curious about how the workplace looks going forward, right? And we have companies like Twitter coming out and saying you never have to come back to work. And Google came out recently and said no one's coming back to work until summer of 2021 and and so forth and so on. And so there's all this discussion about how much office space is going to be needed and the way work's changing and productivity levels and all the stuff I'm sure you've been seeing and reading about as well. And so uh, the other thing that I've been very curious to ask you is, and I, I did, didn't realize there'd been a 2x uh, a doubling of your audience. It's three to five years from now, Pastor Dave. What does being a pastor, what does building a network of, of churches, what does Sunday Mass, you know, what does the whole thing look like? How is it transformed or is it by the technology and by some of the things that have happened here recently? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think a couple of things come to mind. I think, first of all, I do think um, in the past, most everybody would have had to come to, to a church building. Yeah. You I had think, to come to Jesus. <laughs> that's exactly right. And and it was Sunday morning. I think what's going to happen as we get, as we move on the other side, hopefully in time with this, the COVID crisis, <clears throat> is I think people will seamlessly move from both in-person at a facility to digital. So that like, Chris, if you're a part of my church, yeah, you might come to one of our locations, like our location in Naperville. But you know what? Next week, I got family coming over, so I'm gonna just I'm gonna check it out. What's going on online? Because th- that's in what I call the worship service, the large group event. I think the small group experience. I think that piece. I think also will still will 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 be really important. I think actually most important, but that'll also happen online um, or in person. So I think in the future, it's going to just flow back and forth instead of being only in person. I think it'll flow back and forth between in person and online. Here's the other thing I'll throw at you, and I don't know mm-hmm. what you think about this. There's um, something happening in culture where, like, even the fact that we're having this conversation, there's an increased interest in spiritual things. There's an increase. If you just check out what Google's telling us about searches right now, increased searches around the topic of God, spirituality, church, prayer, all those kind of things. So there's an increase in spirituality, which is not surprising when you're in a time of crisis. There's also a um, a desire. For people to be in smaller groups mm. for safety reasons yes because which makes sense this might be because i'm in the church leadership world for a long time in the east there's been lots of very small rapidly reproducing micro churches that are led by mm. lay people i think what we could see here in the west is the same thing so for example let's say a person like yourself you're you're enjoying you're a part of community online.tv where we do our stuff and you're going like, you know what? I would love to have something in Santa Cruz. What we would do is we would say, okay, Chris, we're going to put you through our, our training. It's a short training. We're going to provide you a coach. We'll also put you in a leadership community where you can meet with other small microchurch leaders. And we would love to have you pastor a church in Santa Cruz. 
so that the next time I do your podcast, I will say, hey, Pastor Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this, I don't know if this is a conflict. Does that, or does that make sense? Yes. Uh, and and I, I have a, a bunch of things I want to get to. But, uh, I, I must admit, I probably should have told you this off the top. I am actually a uh, member of clergy. I'm a card-carrying minister in the Church of the Latter-day Dude, which is a church that was founded on the teachings of, of the movie The Big Lebowski. <laughs> <laughs> and as a result, I have performed uh, uh, three marriage ceremonies. <laughs> Uh, so I don't know. Hopefully that wouldn't be a conflict with, with being a micro church for Jesus. <laughs> I, think, I think, I think we can work with it. But um, I do think that's something that could happen in the future. Yeah, very much so. In fact, we're moving that direction. The thing I find fascinating about this micro church phenomena or, or concept is, you know, you're talking to a guy who wrote a book called niche down. Mm. And so, you know, we had this other movement going on in the United States of these mega churches and these enormous domes and, you know, uh, preachers with helicopters and giant planes and all that. Um, and this is sort of feels like, I don't know, I'm, I'm not learned about this stuff the way you are, sort of the opposite of that. It is kind of the opposite of it. Now, in full disclosure, I don't have a helicopter or a plane, but we do have a fairly large church. I think some of these larger churches, though, if they're strategic about it, will take their digital content and they'll use it to equip, okay, to help, to train, to resource these things. It'll be harder for a smaller church because they just wouldn't have the staff or the resources to do it. But I do think some of the larger churches that are thinking movement will use it to, um, yeah. So take, if I said to you, yeah. I want to start a micro church here in Santa Cruz that's connected to your church as yep. opposed to a Baptist church here in Santa Cruz, we could do, go do that. And there's a way and the technology and the sort of changes that were um, accelerated, so to speak, from COVID, you think will accelerate those those micro churches? I think very likely. And in fact, mm. just so you know, I mean, because we'd start lots of churches all over the world. If you wanted to do one that was connected to our church, we could do that. Or if you just want to do one that, you know, that was on your own, we could also help you with that, too. Fascinating. The other thing I wonder about, you know, we're we're in the business world, of course. We've seen the complete destruction now of a geography. We're now seeing that in the healthcare world. I had a uh, a doctor's visit over Zoom last week. Yep. And that included, by the way, a partial physical exam. You know, I put the do, computer do down I, and do I want any details in here? <laughs> well, you had to bend over and it was pretty horrible, but um <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't quite that. Uh, it wasn't quite that. But uh, she wanted to watch me walk and do a few other things. And um, I have a neuromuscular condition, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, you know, so that's happening. And, and you know, one of the things about podcasting, we and I, as I say it, it feels almost like a lie because it seems so preposterous. We've been downloaded in 181 countries. I can't name some of the countries we've been downloaded in. Right. And, and so, so I guess, could I be a parishioner of yours that is considered as active or committed or whatever criteria you might use to describe the faithful, but live in Santa Cruz and n never come see you in Napierville? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because we were at one church with um, 10 locations plus two locations in prisons before COVID. And now we're, we have people from all 50 states and over 40 countries. So, mm. um, so absolutely. So geography is, is gone for churches. Um, I don't think they know it yet, but yes, it has. <laughs> hmm. And, and, and per your point earlier, I mean, my entrepreneurial marketing brain yeah. starts firing off with uh, exciting thoughts of possibility. Um, and do you think that's where, um, religious leaders of various faiths are getting to as it relates to using the technology? I think there are some, um, as you can imagine, most church leaders are probably either wired as people who really like to care for people. So they're more like counselor types mm -hmm. or they're teacher types. They like to teach. Um, I probably have a little more affinity for you. I kind of like to start something from nothing. I love the whole topic around innovation. I love all that. And so for folks that are more wired like me, and there's not as many of them, I think, yeah, they're starting to lean into that and go like, wow, this could be a great opportunity for reaching more people, helping more people, as we say, find their way back to God. I think it's fascinating and I think it's great. Okay. Well, let me know. Hey, let me know when you want to start that micro church. <laughs> yeah. Well, who I'll, knows? You may have planted a seed. I'll get Eddie to uh, coach you. Well, I, I, any excuse to talk to Eddie is a good idea in my mind. Now, I also have to ask you, you know, if I was somebody who at this moment was struggling with everything that's going on in our world, and maybe even questioning God, questioning faith or my faith, um, you know, what, what would you say to people who, who are struggling at this time? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, it makes, it makes sense. It makes sense why you'd struggle. Because I mean, so much of the world, and we've we've kind of we've gone there, is not the way God meant for it to be. It is not working the way God God designed for it to work. I would probably try to, like I did in our earlier in our conversation, tell them, you know, this may not make so much in your head. It may make more sense in your head and not make you feel much better in your heart. Um, but much of what we have in the world that isn't working the way it's supposed to be is not God's fault. It's people's choices. And I'm really sorry that you've had to feel the pain of that. And then I'd probably somewhere end up with, um, try not to confuse what people have done with what God has been trying to do throughout all of history. And then go back to kind of then remind them, no, you are a child of God. You're a child of God and he loves you and I love that line, just as you are and not as you should be. So interesting. One of my dear friends, Bix Bixen, says a similar thing. Maybe he got it from God. I don't know. He said the true definition of love is when you're loved for exactly who you are and exactly who you are not. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Yes. That's grace right there. Yeah. And I, I guess, would it be the same answer, Pastor Dave, for those of us who are walking through unimaginable pain and suffering, unimaginable loss. Like I, I've had many days of late where I, I, I don't even know how I'm continuing to walk. I, I, two days ago, I was just, I just felt like I was in complete mud and spaced out and like in so much pain, it gets, uh, it's like, I don't know, it just, 
that it's like a jackhammer in your head. Like it just, and it's exhausting and it's just, and so for those of us who are in, you know, a place that was unimaginable to us, Mm -hmm. is the answer along the same lines? I think the other encouragement I would, I mean, even personally for you, Chris, make sure you don't do this on your own. I mean, you said the words friends and family. And faith. I'd even go so far as I think, and faith, yeah, in that context. I think think God has intentionally put people in your life to help you get through it. You're helping other people get through things. Let them help you get, get you through it too. I mean, people like Eddie and, and I would, I would love to be a part of that cohort of friends you have too. Um, but yeah, I mean, by God's design, you know, you're not meant to get through this and let those people love you and you love them in return and they'll get you through what you're going through. You know, it's interesting that you say that pastor, um, I'll just tell you what's been on my mind over the last handful of days. Uh, And what's been on my mind is there are angels. Yep. What we've had in our family recently with um, this horrible brain injury is it's very hard to understand medically what's going on and things seem to happen very quickly. You know, it was a sudden accident. He's on the way to the ER. We don't know what's happening. Scans start happening. Surgery start. You know, things are, everything starts rolling. And for whatever reason, Pastor Dave, the facility that he's been in seems like a wonderful facility, but they completely suck at communication. Mm. And because of COVID, we can't be there. And so getting a straight answer of what's going on with our loved one who's going through this horrible brain injury has been very difficult. So, so that's kind of point A. Point B, of course, you get to a certain age in life where you realize that doctors are not omnipotent and that if you're really smart, you pay close attention and, hey, second opinion, second opinion, second opinion. So uh, as a result of that kind of thinking and the situation we're in, that is, we have to make some very, very serious decisions we have sought out second opinions from a number of doctors not connected to this incident, not treating our loved one, but doctors we've known. And in one case, a doctor that we got introduced to by a mutual friend, this the UCSF doctor I mentioned earlier. So in the last week and a half or so, we have talked to four doctors sort of in our network or somehow connected to us about the case and about what we're going through. And in all four cases, Pastor Dave, these doctors have spent an exorbitant amount of time with us, Hmm. have analyzed what's going on with our loved one, have interpreted what the doctors on the ground are saying, have taken time to read his chart Uh, read his scans and MRIs and the like and invest like untold amount of time thinking about it, talking to us, holding our hand, telling us what it means when his doctors say this, that, or the other, what potential prognosis could be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as a side note, they're all women. I don't know. It's a little bit interesting, um, these doctors. And I've just been in awe 
of their humanity and their kindness. And one of these doctors is my doctor and my wife's doctor. And she's been my doctor for almost 25 years. And I said to her, Dr. Kathy, I'm so grateful that part of your definition of caring for me as my doctor is that you would coach us and support us through this. This is not me who's injured. Yeah. And, and so these four women doctors that we've been talking to for second opinions and, and coaching and support are absolutely angels on this earth. And to your point, in times of crisis, there are people who come forward in absolutely remarkable ways, and it's it's breathtaking. I taught, uh, well, actually, Monday on video. It'll show up on, on Sunday's weekend, and we're going through the book of Colossians. And um, the thing that Paul, when he writes Colossians, wants to really get is understanding of Jesus, and this kind of applies to what you're saying. And it's about how Jesus reveals who God is because he shows up as a person. And there was a, a told, a, told a story, a little anecdote. There was a little boy who uh, was going to sleep at night. All of a sudden, there's a really bad thunderstorm, a really bad thunderstorm. And uh, so he starts calling out for his dad. And he calls out for his dad, 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 dad. So his dad, who'd already started to go to bed, comes in and says, what is it? And he said, I'm scared, I'm scared. And his dad sits on his bed and kind of pats his leg and and says, it's okay. You'll be fine. God's here. He's with you. And then he waits a little longer than, you know, the dad, he wants to go to bed. So the dad starts to leave. And then the little boy says, yeah, but I want, I want a God with skin on him. <laughs> and I think that's what you're talking about. I, I, I think God does. And he sends people like that in our lives. And I think to remember, it's like God, that's who Jesus was. God with skin on him. And he sends those people in our lives. It's like, here I am with skin on him to love you through this. And I think that's probably what you got in those, those doctors. Sure feels that way to me, Pastor Dave. Yeah, sounds like it. Now, clearly I could talk to you for a very long time about a very large number of topics, but I also want to be res respectful of your time. I is there anything else you'd like to ta uh, touch on, Pastor Dave? No, I don't think so. I, Chris, I've, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, and like I kind of said at the beginning, I'm like, huh, I wonder what Chris is going to talk to me about. And I, I think I even asked, uh, some of your people going, Hey, can you send me questions ahead of time? And they're like, no, we don't do that. Really. We just kind of have a conversation. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, but no, I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much for the privilege. Uh, and, and your candor and frankness and authenticity. It's, it's refreshing. Well, maybe the appropriate response to that is thank you. And I'm just trying to be who God wants me to be. <laughs> That's the best we can do. That's the best we can do. And I want to thank you, Pastor Dave. I think uh, at times of crisis, many of us look to faith, many of us look to God, and many of us look to the women and men of God. And I know enough about you through Eddie to know that you've made a giant difference for a very long time. And of late, you've stood up with the leadership of your of your church, trying to make a giant difference. And so I just want to thank you for 
the care and comfort of me and the care and comfort of so many others. It's, um, it's a remarkable life of service, um, that you've chosen. And, um, as you well know, you and legendary pastors and, and other, um, spiritual leaders are, are, are more needed now than have been in quite some time, particularly in our part of the world. Sure. Well, thanks. Hey, is it, would it be appropriate for me just to say a prayer for you? Yeah, of course. I would love that. Father God, I just want to say thanks. Thanks that in your providence, in your kind of foreknowledge, you decided to connect Chris and I through Eddie. We both want to say thanks for our friendship with him. Lord, I, would, I want to ask that, first of all, just that you provide healing for Chris with the hurts. And it just feels like there's been so many of them that have kind of come one after another. And I just, I ask that you provide a, just a healing for him that he also senses is really from you. And Lord, also for, for this family member right now who's struggling, we know that you made him and we also know that you can recreate him and you've told us to ask. And so we are, we're asking for healing there. We're asking that you actually heal his physical body. And Lord, I'd, I'd pray for, for myself and for Chris that um, as we continue to kind of lead and in Chris's words too, we want to be legendary leaders as we try to do that throughout the, the multiple crises that are going on. We ask for your guidance. We ask for those that, that voice, that prompting so that we know uh, what to do. And it's, uh, in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Dave. God bless you. Thank you. You too. Well, there he is. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation with Pastor Dave Ferguson as much as I did. And if you know somebody who you think would uh, this conversation would make a difference for, I'd be eternally grateful if you shared this with them. Because, uh, frankly, I want as many people as possible to get to spend some time with Pastor Dave. Um, the other thing I wanted to tell you about Pastor Dave, he asked me to give you his email address. So if for some reason you want to talk to him, send email to Dave Ferguson at communitychristian.org. That's Dave Ferguson, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N at communitychristian.org. And um, uh, my friends at NetSuite, I've been very proud to be associated with these folks because NetSuite is uh, their, our founding sponsor. And they are the platform that um, entrepreneurial businesses use to manage their business, to respond, to manage their business uh, with precision, and to deal with crisis. And uh, they're the world's number one cloud business system. Check out netsuite.com slash different today. And while you're there, you'll be able to pick up your guide, the seven actions businesses need to take now, and schedule a free product tour of NetSuite. That's netsuite.com slash different. And um, I'm also very proud of being associated with my friends at Splunk. Um, I know this executive team well. Um, they're a great group of folks. And Splunk has grown massively to become leaders in something called data to everything. And if we've seen one thing in this crisis, we've seen the delta between companies that are digital or digitally transformed and those who are struggling to get digital. Because digital organizations have been able to respond 
by turning data into doing. And that's what data to everything is really about. It's about connecting data to every question, every decision, and every action in your organization so that you can produce results for your customers, your partners, your people, and everyone that you serve. Check out splunk.com slash D2E today. That's S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And, of course, we would like to thank the legendary pastor, Dave Ferguson. Um, check out DaveFerguson.org, DaveFerguson.org, and uh, pick up a copy of his awesome book called Hero Maker. My friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org have been making a difference for over a decade now to people as they try to dream, plan, and live their best life. And, man, are they making a difference to folks in underserved communities in this crisis. Check out the number one OneLifeFullyLived.org. My friends at Squadcast are the leading mobile uh, internet-based uh, podcast platform, and they're what we use here. Check out squadcast.fm. Interview Valet, speaking of podcasts, get your leading thoughts on leading podcasts. Check out interviewvalet.com. And right now, if you can make a difference to a legendary faith-based organization, um, crack open your wallet and make that difference or volunteer or do whatever you can because uh, so many of our faith-based organizations are meeting today's challenge in so many spectacular ways. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is um, solely for informational purposes and is never tested on GMOs and is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All, right do, all rights do remain perturbed. Uh, warning, the creators of this oddcast were more than likely consuming libations. We are produced and edited by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks, because frankly, it's never been a better time to be grumpy. <laughs> Jamie J and Sarah Knox do uh, technical awesomeness around here, including Lockhead.com and so much more. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to listen to Tom Waits. Spread hope, not viruses. Support your local businesses and faith-based organizations. Thank you dearly to all our healthcare heroes, all our faith-based heroes on the front lines. I love you, Mom and Dad. Uh, thank you, Candy Dandy. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Evil. Sorry, Evil. We just ran out of time for you. Thank you so much, my friends. Please stay well, take good care of each other, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.